We are moving through the book of Revelation. Um, most of the way through it, we'll finish on Easter Sunday. That's only a couple page flips away. I'm going to read all of Revelation 14 and the first four verses of 15. It'll be on the screen or is on the screen. It is on the screen behind me if you need to read there. There's also Bibles in in the pews if you'd like to use one of those. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne, and before the four living creatures, and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes." They've been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God in the Lamb, and in their month, their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever received the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come. The harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress, as high as a horse's bridle, for 1,600 stadia. 
Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, who are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what happened, what, what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. They sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the words spoken to us. I pray that we would hear the word and the word would strike us, would pierce us in our heart. I pray, God, that we would be attentive and that we would respond. Enable me, Father, to speak the word rightly. Help us all to have our hearts opened and inflamed with love for you. We thank you for your love for us, which comes first and best. Amen. There's a few scenes that are happening within, within this passage. Uh, the first is a look at this company of people who earlier have already been presented to us. Uh, this 144,000 people who, who we've said are the representatives of the martyrs of this people, this people who are hearing the word of revelation for the first time, are being warned that something is about to happen, bad stuff is about to happen, there's going to be blood flowing in the streets, and these are people who will be, uh, they'll fall under the sword. They are representatives of this martyr group of people in the land. And here they are presented around the throne of the Lamb. And the, the, their position and the place in the heavens, if you sort of track through the chapters, has, has shifted. When we first see the throne, there are no people there. It's just these strange living creatures. And then later, a couple of chapters later, this company appears. And then this company now is here gathered around the throne. And then by the end of our passage that we just read, they're the people who are the ones who are singing the song that's in heaven. They're the ones leading the music. They've taken up the harps. They're leading the worship songs. So there's this progression that they've assumed in the narrative. You can see their sort of rising importance in the broad story of the book of Revelation. These are the martyr people of the Lamb. And John says these things about them, that they are... Uh, sexually pure, that they're virgins, there's no uh, falsehood in their mouth. And this it has to be heard in light of the place that they are gathered. Um, Peter Lightheart points out that they are on Mount Zion. This is the first time that is mentioned here. This is part of the city of Jerusalem, but it's not the place where the temple is. It's a, it's a military fortification is Mount Zion. And these people are a people of war. They carry the, the trappings of both worship and warfare. When the Israelites were called to Mount Sinai, they were told that they had to be this kind of people. That they were husband and wife could not sleep together for the time that they were gathered around Mount Sinai. 
And then when the Israelites went to war, it was the same thing. Husband and wife could not sleep together. So if you think later in the Old Testament, when David tries to bring Uriah the Hittite back and try to get him to go home and sleep with his wife to cover up what David the adulterer has done, Uriah says, I'm not allowed to do that. Well, it was because he was a man of war. And he really was not permitted to do that. So these martyr people are named as that kind of people. They are the people that would be gathered around in worship. They are the people who are also at war. They are the people of God who are at war through worship. And we are to see them as triumphant, even though we know what happens to them. We know that they are a martyred people. They're a killed people. And yet Revelation will persistently say, these are the victorious ones. Though it might seem otherwise, they are the ones who've conquered because they have followed the first martyr, Jesus, the lamb who has been slain, but is now the one who is worthy to open up the scroll. After we see this picture, you have this series of three pronouncements by angels telling you sort of the big picture of the story. The first is what, what the writer calls the gospel. The first angel screams out this gospel, this good news. Fear God, give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, <clears throat> and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. The second thing that's yelled out, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And we haven't read anything about Babylon the Great at all. So if you're reading at this point, and the reader is saying, wait, who now is doing what? Well, the, the angel is telling you what's coming, what's about to happen. And in fact, all three of these pronouncements are giving you an indication of where the story is heading. So before Babylon the Great even enters into the story, the angel is telling you what's going to happen. She is going to fall. Babylon the Great is going to fall. She's, in some sense, already fallen. It's already decided. And then finally, there's another pronouncement. We call back to last week. If you remember the, you know, the famous passage with the mark of the beast, the 666 thing that everybody loves to figure out, who is that? Is it Bill Gates or the Pope or blah, blah, blah? The, this mark of the person who, who, who is claims a, a sort of political religious authority, the kind of people who've put their hopes, possibly even the way that Solomon put his hopes in this same number of talents of gold. These people who have accepted that mark on their hand and their forehead, they're in trouble. They will be cast into judgment. And then the final scene is a scene of one who is like a son of man sitting on a cloud. Now, to the Jewish readers of the book of Revelation to this message, that language is very familiar. In Daniel chapter 7, there's a prophecy that Daniel gives. It becomes very famous in Israel where Daniel sees one who is like a son of man, the same description, ascending through the clouds. And he stands before God, the Ancient of Days is what Daniel calls him. And the Ancient of Days gives him all the authority to rule. And that's why Jesus takes up that term. He calls himself the Son of Man. He's referring back to that prophecy. And now John is picking up that term. Here is one who is like a Son of Man. So who is this? It's Jesus. Where is he? He has completed the movement that Daniel foresaw. He's sitting on the clouds. And in his hand, he's got a new thing that we've not seen before. A sickle. 
He's, he's ready to not just ascend, but descend and to reap in the earth. There's a reaping of wheat in the first reaping with the sickle, and then there's a second reaping of grapes. And the grapes are crushed in what he calls the winepress of the wrath of God. And blood comes out of the winepress. And this goes in every direction, the, the height of a horse's mouth for 1,600 stadia. If you're not up on units of Roman measure, which I'm not either. I have to look in my footnotes of my Bible, about 184 miles, if you're wondering. The point, though, is, is not the, the vertical dimension, but that it's 40 times 40. The direction, the points of the compass are four, the 40 of completion, 40 times 40 is this massive number. It's a way to express to you how big the destruction will be because of the wine press of the wrath of God. And everybody responds in praise. It ends, this scene ends with a song. Praising God. Now, this, this text, these series of scenes that, that all fit together and are moving in a direction. They, the narrative is traveling in a direction. For us, feels so foreign. It, it feels so disruptive to us. The, this text is emphasizing the things that we would want to sidestep and is celebrating the things that we want to turn down. And so in a lot of ways, uh, you, you could have two different reactions to this, to this kind of text in the book of Revelation and in other parts of the Bible. One you have the people who stand in the middle of downtown Asheville or in the Apple Festival with big angry signs who love these verses and say, you're going to burn in the pit forever and the smoke from your bodies will ascend to God for all eternity. And they love it. They just love to hammer. You hate it. That's why you need to hear it. That the fact that you hate it is the reason why I'm telling you this. Of course, always those signs are facing the other people and never themselves. It's never aimed at them. It's just all the other pagan people over there. The other reaction that you can have is, is to say, let's just skate right by this. Let's not talk about this because it's bloody and there's like hellfire and smoke and I'm just not into that. That's not what makes me want to sing about Jesus. So let's not do that. But the reason why we pick up the Bible and we read it all the way through is that we give the text permission to come and aim its very pointed words at us. What we confess when we come to Scripture is that I am not the best determiner of what is good and true and beautiful. But it's actually God who needs to speak to me and tell me what I need to hear. Now, we have to incline our ear to the text and listen to what is not only in front of us, but the, the whole voice of Scripture itself. It is important to hear who John is talking to. John is talking to a church 
that is teetering on the, on the edge of disaster. They, they are about to fall under the wheels of power and get crushed by the Roman Empire and an alliance between the Roman Empire and the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem. They are having powers from every side pressing in. What, what John says in the previous chapters is that they are like beasts who rise from the sea and from the land with, with red fangs bared, ready to rip to shreds this church. And John does not tell them false comfort about their future. What he tells them is the truth. You are going to die. They will do this to you. It is going to happen. And he is speaking to a church who will be left with the carnage, the wreckage of these beasts putting their claws into their lives and ripping apart families, ending lives before it seems like they should. And these are a people that need to hear a word about who is sitting on the throne and whether or not he is paying attention. This will be the temptation and the question that will, will come at them in the night as they wrestle with their grief. Where is the God who sits on the throne? Where is he? And John is given this vision to tell them, to reveal to them. That's why it's called Revelation. To reveal to them what is true. Not only is God sort of aware of what's going on, He is fully in control. He is the master over it. And He has already spoken a word of destruction on the powers that be that will crush them and grind them into the dust. And in some strange and unexpected way, He will use the blood that they will shed to accomplish his own purposes in the world. Not only, not only is he paying attention to their death, to their suffering, but their suffering is actually a means by which God will accomplish and do something in the world to destroy the powers that are seemingly destroying them. So we have to hear this word, this proclamation of destruction and judgment on the enemies of God as good news for the people who are hearing it. It is fundamentally good news. That is why the first angel's proclamation is called a gospel. It is the gospel. The first angel says, I'll read it again in verse 6 and 7. I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. To the people who are about to be trampled under the hooves of the chariots of the Roman Empire. To the people who are about to be in Jerusalem and ripped apart at the point of the sword and every other kind of torturous device. This is good news. 
But what the angel says is this is actually good news to everyone. Did you hear him say that? This, this is an eternal gospel to every nation and tribe and language and people that covers every demographic. To everyone everywhere at all times, this is the gospel. This is an eternal gospel. Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. In our day and time, we have, we've just heard the word judgment and said, judgment, bad. And so we, we have a hard time hearing this proclamation as a gospel, as an eternal gospel for all people. Judgment is bad. Therefore, this does not make sense. Gospel and judgment do not go together. But my, my suggestion is, is that we as a people are most comfortable saying that because we live comfortable lives in which the world largely operates in our favor. For, for a, an American, in a Western context, especially middle-class, white American context, judgment can always be a bad thing because guess what? If judgment didn't come, I'm fine. Life is good. The board is pretty well tilted in my favor. It is pretty much, I am in the best demographic pretty much in the world. I don't want judgment. I'm happy with the way that things are. But for the rest of the world, the announcement that God will come and judge wickedness is decidedly good news. I can tell you for certain that in the South, in the 1920s and 30s, you better believe that our brothers in the African American church are begging God for this good news to come today. When you live on the other side of the Jim Crow South, you better believe that they are trusting in the good news of the gospel that God has seen every bit of this mess. And he will come and render a judgment and put to destruction every piece, every artifact of the Jim Crow South. Our brothers and sisters who live in different times, in different places, in different socioeconomic statuses, they understand this better than we do. And we have to listen to them because they are telling us the truth. The truth that is in alignment with Scripture is, it is a good word that God will not let evil have its say forever. That is an eternal gospel. And if we can't hear it, it's because we are far too comfortable with our own lives. But for the people who are hearing and reading this word for the first time, this is obvious they are living under the thumb of the Roman Empire. Their swords are pointed at the church's throat. So for them, it is, of course, an eternal gospel that God will come and judge the world. They are saying, thank God, He will take care of these beasts. He will demolish them. 
Because we are powerless and cannot do it ourselves. But that does not erase the circumstances of their present. It does not. They are a people who live in hope and in trust that the things that they are hearing and reading are actually true, that they cannot see it with their own eyes. Because John will tell them, this is the good word. This is the good news. God is going to do this. He is doing it. He will do it. But at the same time, there is a sickle. And there will be a harvest. And the harvest will scoop them up. You're prepared for that imagery. For the imagery of the the Son of Man scooping out from the earth these people, by the words that immediately precede it. Write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Jesus is himself the one who was exposed to the very darkest powers of darkness and evil. He himself was trampled under the chariot wheels of the empire. This alliance between the powers of Jerusalem and Rome. The beasts have come and consumed him as well. And his people are not exempt from his own destiny. It is, as it were, that the people go to him outside the walls and bear his disgrace with him. So when the sickle falls, it is the godly who are harvested in the great work of martyrdom. John is telling them two things at the same time that he's he's telling them that they must hold on to. One, God will judge. He will crush the powers of evil and darkness. In their day, and in ours, and also the sickle may fall on them. And both things can be true for this church at the same time. And what does he want for them? But the text tells us to be steadfast, to hold faith, to trust him, that he is at work. He will do what he said he will do. Of course, it is in that imagery of these two harvests, of the grain and the grapes, that we are reminded of the church's identity. It is in broken bread and offered wine the church finds its deepest identity in union with the king of the kingdom who saves us. Every every week when we come to this table, you are reminded that you are joined to this work. Jesus has done this for you. But in communing with him, you're also called, you're beckoned to follow him. And look, something I've wrestled with with this text is how... 
And with this whole book is how do I preach this to, to a people who, let's be honest, are not and are likely never to be martyrs. We, we are not a people who are just like these people. The, the things that you and I might call persecution would be the best case scenario for many of our brothers and sisters today. It is not persecution. It is not martyrdom. So how do I preach this to you, this revelation, this apocalypse given to a martyred people, a people on the verge of martyrdom? What we must do is attend to the text and bend our ear to it and let it interrogate us. Is the word given permission to interrogate our own hearts and motivations so that we can listen to its warnings? Because if the people there are tempted to to take upon their hands and on their foreheads the mark of the empire, we can say we also will face that temptation. We may not face the point of the sword the way that they did. doesn't look like that will ever be the case in my day or in yours. What we can say is that beasts, those beasts, that dragon that we saw last week, he will still ask for your hand. See, the, the people who are described in Revelation 14 also are marked on their forehead. Did you notice that? Beginning of Revelation 14, the people, the 144,000, they also are marked on, the for, on their forehead. You will be marked. Somebody will own you. Somebody will claim you. And, and what our day and our time and our place and our culture will press on you to do is accept the mark of that beast and refuse the mark of Christ. Somebody is going to own you and the the warning here is still relevant even for a people like us. Be careful. Be careful. Be careful. Do not fall in to the wiles, the seductions, is how the writer will say it, of the great harlot city to, to usher you into rebellion against God. Be careful, be careful, be careful. That warning is real. And it is texts like this that, that show us that the people of God should rejoice in the judgment of God that help us bring those things to light. It's actually this text, when you read those things that trouble you and stir things up, this is like spiritual hydrogen peroxide. This is something is going deep in the wounds of your soul, and if there is friction there, if there's something is bubbling up in you, that's because something is there. And you should pay attention to it. And if we are a people who are comfortable and secure and have a hard time saying it is a good word that God is going to come and judge, then we should take care. Because it's possible that we have grown accustomed to the whisperings of the dragon. Now, 
the great hope in the book of Revelation, the great hope of this church in Jerusalem, and the great hope of all of Scripture is that judgment does not have to be a thing that you are afraid of. This text is not inviting you into a position of fear. It's the opposite. Revelation 14 and 15 is meant for your assurance and encouragement. It is meant that way for the people who read it. It is meant for you that way. It may first trouble you. It may first trouble you to hear that God might come and do this thing. He might come and judge, and that scares you. That might trouble you because the question naturally becomes, what will happen to me? But that is not meant to be a question that, lead, that you are presented with no answer. When Jesus is crucified, when he is resurrected, and after he is ascended, do you know that when Peter stands up and preaches in Acts 2, the thing that he says is that the great day of God's judgment has arrived. And he points backwards to the cross, and he says, that was it. What he's saying is judgment for all of those who trust in Jesus comes and is rendered assuredly at the cross. So when you read here in Revelation 14 and 15 the good word that God is going to come and judge the world, you don't have to sit on the fence and say, goodness, I hope I fall in the right camp. I hope I'm not one of the ones that God is going to come and judge. You can experience, you can have Now, right away, immediately, a telling of what that judgment will be. If you come and you trust in Jesus, your great day of darkness and gloom and doom and judgment, it has already come. The day for you has happened far before you've ever breathed on this earth. The day has come far ahead of time in history. The great day of judgment has happened. The verdict has been rendered. Everything that is evil in you, the darkness and death and wickedness that you have conspired with, has been put on the cross and wrestled into Jesus' own grave. So that it frees you to read this and to confess with the whole church everywhere and always, this is good news. God is going to come and judge the whole world. He's going to end the powers of darkness and evil and destruction and death. This really is the eternal gospel for all people everywhere at all times. You are invited and encouraged to see that and receive that word as a good word for now and always. Because the judgment has come on Jesus. And he, the lamb who was slain, has overcome. And that puts us in a different position when we read that text. And we can be a Lenten people who confess that we have conspired even still with darkness. Even still we have conspired with the things that Jesus will come and judge. But we can confess to God joyfully and freely, not out of fear, Because we already know that He accepts us. So we can plead with Him. Change my life. Bring your judgment now. 
Free me from the powers that I'm entangled in. Cleanse my heart. Search me. Know me. I want to stop contributing to the powers of sin and darkness and death in the world. You don't have to do it cowering in fear. You've already been given the advance warning of your judgment that you've been accepted, you've been deemed acceptable, and then you can just ask God's fine pointed surgeon's scalpel to come in and judge and cut out every bit of the evil that you've conspired with. You may not be a martyr. God willing, you won't be. I don't want that for you. Though there is certainly a word here from John that there is something powerful and important about the work of a martyr in the world. But you must be a person who attends to this text. Beware the mark of the beast and instead receive the rendered judgment of the people of God. See Jesus' work on the cross and resurrection and hear the verdict shouted over you. Turn and repent to him. Not because you're afraid, because you're terrified of him, but because you already know he's accepted you and welcomed you. And you want his delightful judgment to come and free you of the things that you've gotten to bed with. And if you are here today and you have never, ever turned to Jesus, then of course the proclamation that God is going to come and judge the world is terrifying. Because then you know that you might be on the docket. You know if he's going to come and judge in a holy way that you are not holy. You may be good. You may be better than Hitler, but still not holy. And that then makes this passage scary. But it does not have to be. What he wants is to bring you home, to welcome you, and to put his name on your forehead so that you don't have to be afraid anymore. You don't have to worry and to wonder what God will do with you. He's already shown you in the lamb that was slain and yet lives. If you are here today and you are afraid before God, you do not have to be. That can change today and it should God has presented himself to you today. The cross is before you to tell you that judgment does not have to hang over your head. It can be a settled question for you. The broken bread, the wine, the cup show you that the way has been split open for you. That Jesus' own life can be a harvest delivered to you. If, you, if you're a Christian here today, you will be tempted in many ways to move away from this place and to not trust that what God has done at the cross is still yet sufficient. And those are the lies of the dragon. Those are the lies of the enemy of your soul who would want you to wander further and further away into prisons of shame and despair. There is good news here. The good news is before you, that God has come close to you, and you don't have to be afraid, now or ever.
If you have trusted in Jesus and have become afraid because you have fallen so far short, he has already proclaimed over you his love towards you. But he will deal gently with you. And if you would come to him, you wouldn't need to cower before him and fear and wonder what he might do. He's already shown you and assured you what he will do. And then you can just hear the good word that he will yet deliver you. Because this is the lamb, gentle and mild towards his people, who like a lion will roar and rip to shreds all those who would terrorize his people. Because he loves you and you are his, he will protect you and hold you forever, even unto death. Let me pray for us. Father, you have made us to be a people set apart for you. And it might be tempting to to go to war with the people that might oppose us or trouble us, but the, the warfare that you've called us to is the warfare of worship. To realize that the battle is not against flesh and blood. Even when flesh and blood seems to really oppose and oppress us, The battle is not against flesh and blood. But the battle is meant to be fought in worship. Father, I pray for all those who heard your word, this proclamation of a surprising good news that the judgment is on its way. I pray, God, that they would see judgment delivered in the cross. And Father, I pray that as the people who come and find shelter under the cross, that we would also plead this good word that you would come, that your kingdom would come in power, that you would judge wickedness and evil, that you would demolish finally and forever the powers of sin. Father, we ask that you open our eyes and see the places where we have conspired with that evil, where we have gotten into bed with it and been seduced by it, Father, we pray that you would grace us with a spirit of repentance. We would see clearly the places we ourselves have grown comfortable with the beasts. Father, I pray for those who are here and hearing this language, these words of judgment, and they're tempted to be afraid of you. I pray, God, that you would make clear to them that they don't have to be afraid. There's a kind of fear that sees you for who you are, and there's a kind of fear that makes you run away. And we're called to the former. I pray, Father, that their their fear would transform into an understanding that you are big and holy, and they are small and not holy, and yet you condescend in love and get down on your knees to speak to your children. I pray, God, that they would feel the great miracle of grace beckoning towards them and embracing them. Father, we look to you and trust. I thank you that you've been so kind and generous to us. I thank you that you will not let evil have its fi- the final say. Father, Still our hearts before you. 
And let us respond to the call of the gospel that we might come closer to you, Lord Jesus, even as you run towards us. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.